Mindfulness Mode 301. What does it mean to be mindful when you are in a meeting and you are pissed at a coworker? Welcome. You're listening to Mindfulness Mode, and I'm your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Thanks for joining today. We are celebrating 300 shows. As you know, this is 301. I have a Mindfulness Mode mug here just for you, just for being a listener and subscriber. To get your mug, subscribe to the show and send me a message at bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. Tell me in the message that you've subscribed and tell me why you like the show. I'll read your comment on an upcoming episode. Here's a comment about the show I received from H.C. Faust. Thanks, Bruce, for encouraging more conversations about mindfulness and the ways we can practice it in our lives. Nice work. So thanks, H.C., for that comment. My guest today is passionate about compassion and compassionate leadership, especially at the corporate level. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Stanford Business School prof, Leah Weiss. Hey, Mindful Tribe, great to have you with us today. We're talking about compassion, something I don't think we have enough of in the world today, and I'm very fortunate to have with me Leah Weiss. Leah, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am so pleased to be joining you all in mindfulness mode today. That's awesome. Leah Weiss, she has her PhD and she's a Stanford Business School professor. She's a corporate consultant and she's worked with LinkedIn, with Google. She's an author, HarperCollins author and a public speaker. She has a TEDx talk into it. Google, LinkedIn, and Leah is an expert in corporate mindfulness, in compassion, and purpose. And she has a long history in this work in education and compassion training. So Leah, what does mindfulness mean to you? Mindfulness, my preferred definition of it, the simplest one, is the intentional use of attention. And There's a reason I like this definition, because I think that it speaks to the heart of what the outcome of mindfulness is, as well as um, as the process that when we become better able to use our attention intentionally, then this opens up all kinds of possibilities for us, both in terms of our productivity, but also interpersonally. Yes. Well, I know that you help people in the corporate setting. How can this help us to be more productive? That's a great question. So at core, when we are at work, we need to be working. We need to be doing things. If we don't have the ability to channel where we're placing our attention, we're not going to be able to be as effective as if we have this skill. This is like the root to uh, a strong tree that the more that we are able to build this foundation, that we can um, bring our attention back time and time again, ask the right question about where we should be focused. It's going to make all the difference. So, 
you go into corporations and you help them. How do you do this? Do you do it one-on-one? Do you do talks? Let's, let's find out what you actually do. Um, well, it looks ideally, um, we're working on multiple levels. So ideally an organization is paying attention at the personal level, um, as well as at the team level and at the corporate level. So uh, for organizations who are really committed to having mindfulness or compassion at the core of what they're doing, um, it really needs to be an effort that goes to all of these different um, capacities. So when I work with organizations, I think it's really important to get everybody on the same page, but also to create very practical trainings. Um, so if there's a talk, that can be great for imparting information. I do online courses, which can also be great for the skill building part of it. But really the individual and team efforts, um, those also, as you well know, as a coach yourself, those, requ- those are where the rubber meets the road. So for organizations that are really committed They put their leadership um, as individuals and teams. This is built into their professional development programming um, that's entwined with all of the outcomes that they're trying to meet. So, Leah, right now, 2018, in the corporate setting, what is blocking people the most from being compassionate? I think a lot of it comes down to fear. there and in sometimes a lack of modeling um, or lack of clarity. So people who have examples in their organization when the leadership is walking the walk with um, being purpose-driven and being compassionate, then that evokes the same behavior in everybody else in the organization. But in your, when you're in a culture where um, it's a kind of cover your own behind deflect blame, um, try to, you know, throw the other person under the bus, it becomes very difficult to be the first person to take that step to do what's actually best for everyone, for yourself, for everyone involved, for the organization, for the bottom line. We've got lots of great research about why compassion is so important. Um, But I think it's hard to take that first step. And if people aren't the CEO or part of the company's leadership, they, they can feel disempowered to do that. So this is one of the things I really like to focus on, both with leadership, the importance for them, but also um, making available examples of people who've done all kinds of um, great work who aren't, who aren't at the top of the org chart, um, but have made real changes in their companies by being the person who said, hey, this is important here's why, and here's a first step, and let's, let's try that and, and go from there. Well, Leah, tell us a story about a situation where real changes have been made and they've experienced a complete turnaround because of compassion. Yeah, so many of them. Um, so I worked with an organization, a finance organization, uh, this last year, um, And finance is not known uh, (laughs) as being typically the most like compassion forward type of organizations. Right. Um, And this 
company, the PM, the portfolio manager um, who had started the company was really committed to a culture of awareness and a culture of um, candor and of compassion. And it was built in, um, you know, when the fund started, it was, um, it was something that was baked in from the beginning and how everything was set up. And, you know, the employees found it so valuable because they felt like they were part of an experiment of um, not just crushing it financially, but showing, demonstrating that this can happen um, with values like compassion and awareness and self-awareness in place. And, you know, there's any industry you want to talk about, there's examples now, um, you know, within finance, healthcare, tech. Um, you know, even more sort of um, uh, production oriented uh, industries, um, manufacturing. There's so many great examples. I, I was just hearing a great case about um, an Idaho potato farming company who's embracing mindfulness as a core value um, as part of a case study I'm writing for the Harvard Stanford database right now. Well, Leah, what made you so passionate about compassion what were you like as a child like tell me about you as an eight-year-old child what were you like what did you love oh man i was a hellraiser um (laughs) were you well i yeah i um you know i've always been a person a sort of from the time i was little i was described by my teachers as kind of marching to my own drummer um, had, you know, the day I was, this kind of summarizes, I think a lot of my childhood, the day I was accepted to Stanford, um, for an undergraduate, which was the dream school I wanted to go to. I was also in detention that morning. That kind of was me. I, you know, I was in detention because I, there were some rules that I just was not on board with in the high school and I broke the rules and I paid the consequence. Um, and it was not the first time that day. And have you broken rules as a Stanford professor? Is that the kind of professor you are too? <laughs> um, I don't, you know, I'm less rebellious as an adult now. Like it's less of a, um, like break rules for their own sake. But I do try to keep as a personal value that um, standing for sanity and, um you know, supporting what I believe to be right. So, you know, I I feel very fortunate in the context I teach in at Stanford. I have a great amount of respect for the leadership at the business school. I think it's an incredibly thoughtful group of people who are really available for discussions and feedback. So it just doesn't create that kind of environment where it's like, this is how it is because that's how I say it's how it is. And I, you know, you need to work with that if there's something I don't like. Um, which, you know, often there's a good reason for it if I ask, but there's always a discussion to be had. Um, so I think that's less part of my personality now than as a child. But I think it made me really, you know, that kind of agita with being a little bit of a, um, you know, a, a person who's testing the limits, I think in some ways did lead me to be really interested in mindfulness and also channeling this energy that I had towards, you know, sort of righteous indignation, wanting as I grew older to put that to good use, you know, not just make problems for problem's sake, but like there's lots of 
important places now where we need to stand and speak up and in seeing these practices as a as a uh, way to have that um, balance uh, that re- kind of resilience and stability so that it's coming from the right place towards the right place can make mistakes but get re re uh, rooted and move on so Leah, what do you teach at Stanford and how do you weave compassion into your teachings? So uh, the main class that I've designed over the last five years, this iterative um, process with MBA students and um, mid-career students at the business school, it's a class in compassionate leadership. And it brings mindfulness in because mindfulness is really the foundation. We can't be responsive to other people's suffering if we're so distracted and ill-equipped to notice it or be with our own feelings in response to it. So the course is called Leading with Mindfulness and Compassion. I teach each week. It's a combination of um, executive summaries of the research and this, the topic that we have. So if it's a week on bouncing back from failure on, on um, when we have an unintended outcome at work, for example, mm-hmm. how do we, what's the research say about the best way to be resilient? And, you know, self-compassion would be a part of that. And then after a little bit of orienting with this information and having people conceptually digest that, then we include work, um, personal transformation kind of processes, interpersonal. I'll set them up with um, small group discussions or exercises that they need to do together to get a better understanding of their own current practice um, and where they want to go. And and then I give them tools to help them um, that are based on the evidence that are based on the science. Um, Meditation is part of what I teach, um, but I don't only teach meditation. I try to teach the concepts. They have to commit to practicing for the 10 weeks of the quarter, a daily meditation practice, but then they've got lots of stuff that they're doing during the days. that map onto the mindfulness and self-compassion and extending compassion curriculum. Well, let's talk about what meditation looks like in your life, Leah. Do you meditate every day? And if you do, what's it like? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I practice every day. I mean, I spent my whole 20s doing 100-day, six-month meditation retreats. So I am... um, I'm a big fan of meditation and see a lot of benefit. I, my own personal practice, I do a lot of stuff in the Tibetan tradition, which I've been trained in. Um, and you know, that was what I focused in, um, for many years. And that was what drove my interest in compassion practice time. I spent in India with Tibetan refugees and seeing how they both practiced and brought it to social impact work. Um, Time I work closely with Tupton Jimpa, the Dalai Lama's interpreter, um, on, on our compassion um, research and programming um, at Stanford and, and now beyond. And, um, and yeah, so my own personal practice, I do things with compassion and mindfulness, but I also, you know, do visualizations and uh, chanting and traditional practices that I get a lot of value out of. I, I really 
adore them. <laughs> and a lot of what I teach is um, secular applications or, or adaptations of these practices that are intended to make these benefits available to people from all different religious backgrounds and who don't want to do all the complexity of learning um, Tibetan Buddhist um, practice per se, but they definitely care about compassion and they care about generosity and they care about mindfulness. So I try to take the richness of these practices and this tradition, um, practice it in my own life and just keep developing more um, more ways in for people. I love that. And Leah, I know you have at least one child, maybe a couple. What have your children <laughs> taught you about mindfulness and compassion? Uh, I've got three kids. Three. Ages seven, four, and three. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they are, they teach me a ton about compassion, about paying attention, um, you know, just some examples, like my littlest one, he's the third child and he's got a brother who's 15 months older than him. So he is like very scrappy at, you know, meeting his own needs and getting attention. So he'll kind of do this thing. If he sees I'm not really focused on him, he'll literally take with his little hands, he'll grab my face and like direct it, point my face at him. So I'm looking and he'll move his little head right up close to mine so that his eyes are right in front of my eyes. And I love that. Like, it's just such a physical, like I am literally grabbing your attention. And, you know, every time he does that and I just drop whatever the thing I was distracted by, often internally, sometimes technology, but often internally. And it's just such a great, you know, prompt reminder, like to be present with this little guy, um, playing with them. I feel like they're so spontaneous. They love to build. They love to do dramatic play. And they're always creating and constructing physical and sort of mental worlds. And I feel like that's actually what we do as adults. We just sometimes forget to have as much fun with it and forget that we can influence um, as much about our surroundings. So I, I love doing that um, with all of them. And the third thing that I would say is um, also just, you know, it teaches a lot in terms of self-compassion. I feel like I make so many mistakes um, every day or I model something that's not what I want them to learn. You know, I'm paying a lot of attention to you know, raising them with self-compassion because I see that as a huge problem in my students uh, at the business school and beyond. People just don't have a good relationship with, um, with self-criticism and really getting the value out of uh, feedback and failure. We know we should, but it's really, really hard to do. So I work with them a lot about that. But then as a mom, you know, there's so many times that I'll get frustrated and then be frustrated with myself for being frustrated because I'm supposed to be a compassion teacher. So what am I, you know, doing getting upset at a four-year-old? Yeah. Does that put a lot of pressure on you, Leah? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like it was, I feel like it puts an accountability, but it was a painful pressure in the beginning. Now I feel like it's just kind of causes you got to have a sense of humor and you got to be humble. Like I'm not saying I'm the Dalai Lama. I'm saying I'm a person who values and, 
and understands how to do practices the Dalai Lama teaches. But, you know, I've heard even he gets upset. And if he had to hang out with my four-year-old day in and day out, he might get frustrated sometimes too. Well, Leah, I think you're right. I think sometimes we do forget to have fun. And I think it's something that we have to be very very uh, forward about. We need to make sure we are having fun in our lives. Now, your book is called How We Work. Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. So you've covered a lot of ground right there in the subtitle about the daily grind and you know making sure that we reclaim our sanity. What prompted you to write this book? Hmm. <laughs> Um, being a a working mom who, you know, lives in one of the most expensive, most expensive places in the country. Um, so there's a lot of financial pressure all the time. And I also want to live out, um, the values I hold, the, the, um, practices that I spent my twenties in retreat trying to learn. Then in my thirties, I realized like, this stuff is really hard to do in, you know, in day-to-day life, which makes it more valuable and more precious. But, you know, I really wanted to write the book that I needed to read. And um, I met a lot of challenges coming back after each child in professionally and personally. And I also feel like I was really uh, fortunate. I had some amazing mentors. Um, You know, I think of one of the, um, one in particular, Pat Kristen, who is managing director of the Omidyar Group, who is CEO of Hope Lab. Um, you know, she's the kind of leader that, you know, seeing her live this like very humane, um, effective, like effective as all get out, tough in terms of like getting the the best quality work out of people, but so human, so sane. Um, her example for me combined with my own trying to learn, um, in research and, and, you know, bridge the gaps between what I knew how to do in retreat and what I wanted to know how to do as a mom, that that's really a lot of what this book is about. And as a parent, I don't think it's really a gendered thing. Although of course there's a lot of aspects of being a mom that, um, intensify, but it's absolutely the case for, you know, for dads that I know as well, who are, you know, people who want to, and not even just parents, people who want to work, but also have a full life that have a full human existence. Sure. Leah, (laughs) looking back and writing this book, what is the most impactful thing you learned personally? I think for me, it took me a while to write this book because I had these two little boys along the way. Um, and you know, in the time that I'd written my first book proposal, there were not books about mindfulness in the workplace. And by the time I was actually sitting down to write the book, there was a ton. Hmm. And that was a moment that felt, you know, a little overwhelming. Like what is this all been done? Did I miss the boat? I was off having these babies. If I had sat and written the book, um, then it would have been news, but what do I have to contribute? Um, so really grappling with that and talking to people I respect about that. I had, I remember having conversations with uh, Kelly McGonigal, who's a health psychologist at Stanford, amazing writer, one of the best 
most frequently viewed TED Talks of all times, you know, talking to people like her about how do you have a healthy dose of intellectual humility, but also like enough, um, you know, chutzpah <laughs> to, to feel like you still have something to say and contribute and identify what that is into the conversation. And I think that I'm glad that I asked those questions. I'm glad that I wrote the book when I did, because this is a very different book than has been written um, before about mindfulness at work. It's not only about meditation. It's not even mostly about meditation. It's mostly about how to bring these ideas into our actual work, not the break between work. Right, because it applies to the workplace. Is that the thing that sets your book above all the others out there? I think the thing that, that I'm that I this book contributes is the how do you really apply these ideas off the cushion? There's so much focus about everybody clear your mind, be you know mindful. If we do have a mindfulness program at work, it's like a lunch hour meditation program. That's that's so narrow, and that's never been what mindfulness was all about. It's always been an in-action, off-the-cushion process. So my book really gets into what does it mean to be mindful when you are in a meeting and you are pissed at a coworker? Mm. Or what does it mean to be compassionate? Um, and also balance that with like, you know, maybe your team needs something out of you that you want to give, um, but you also have other people, like little people at home who need something out of you and you need something from you. How do you think about all these different roles and um, and bring mindfulness into these really hard choices and questions that are not just asked and answered once, they're lifelong, <laughs> you know, things we have to decide again and again. Sure. Yes. Well, I want to ask you a question about bullying, Leah. I've worked in that field for a number of years. Have you a story which shares a situation, maybe you were bullied, maybe you were on the other side of it, where mindfulness would have made a difference? Yeah, bullying is such an important question. And, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting about this question as well is that workplace bullying, as you know, is on the rise. It we is. call it inclivity in the research. And, um, you know, it's a major organizational cost and, and it, it plays out in so many, um, in so many settings. I talk to people who run large uh, tech divisions and, you know, the kinds of things that they're working with their employees are the same skills that I'm working with my three and four year olds on. Like, you know, you don't have to destroy somebody else's tower if you weren't the one who got to come up with the idea. It's a lot of the same stuff, right. but maybe we're talking about coding or we're talking about timelines as opposed to building a block tower. Um, well, I, I've definitely experienced, I had a person that I, I worked with who uh, worked for who had a very erratic um, management style and was, you know, part time on the work that I was working on full time. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, it was really challenging and, um, trying to self sort of edit. So I don't, you know, when it, he's a good person with a good heart, but sure. it was, there were a lot of situations where 
you know, I felt like as a young working mother early in my career, um, you know, our conversations felt like interrogations often, like a one-on-one check-in that, that could have been an opportunity to problem solve and, and you know, debrief and get his wisdom and experience and the resources he wanted to bring to it. I, I felt like I was like going into a boxing match. Right. It doesn't sound like you felt like the element of compassion was there. No, I didn't. I didn't, which was ironic because, of course, the topic was related to compassion because all my research and work has been as an adult. But it's hard. I mean, this stuff is hard to bring into the nitty gritty, which is why I wrote this book. You know, I feel for him. I didn't enjoy it at all at the time. It was awful and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, really kind of traumatizing over time. Like I just was eaten alive by that job because it was never enough and I could never be prepared. And he was really smart and kind of sniff out if I prepared A through Y, then we would, you know, definitely Z would be the thing that would get, you know, picked up to, to, um, dig into and kind of pick at and and it it was challenging how did you work through Um, it to get to the other side and still feel intact i had to make some decisions about how i wanted to live my life and and whether this was a job that i wanted to go forward in and um i tried to have direct conversations one-on-one um about my experience of our dynamic i tried bringing in hr um, to have a third person to try to, you know, maybe helps round out the perspectives. Um, and ultimately, I didn't stay there full time. Um, I went to a different organization. Um, and I did keep collaborating with that person. I didn't, I don't feel like, you know, it was a, he was a bad person. It was just like, someone told me a long time ago, that we can have compassion for almost anybody, but we have to figure out the right distance to have it from. So, Mm. you know, maybe working for someone 40 hours a week isn't a distance I can have compassion from, but, you know, interacting once a year at an event um, and working on projects that we both care about, but not directly that, that works, but it, it, you know, it was a fine line and I had to do a lot of um, decision-making myself about what, my values were and where my um, sort of line in the sand was. Did I want to be a spokesperson about this issue? Because I kind of suspected the next person would come in and have the same experience. You know, there's a lot of considerations to be made when we're in these kind of situations. Well, Leah, as we move toward the end of the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. And the first one is this, who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Tupton Jimpa, he's been an amazing teacher and yeah, mm. Tupton Jimpa, the Dalai Lama's interpreter, author of Fearless Heart. He is, uh, he is a wise and patient and humble and humorous person. Yeah, definitely him. Uh, sounds like a wonderful opportunity you've had to be mentored by him. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Leah? Um, <laughs> I know them better. Um, I recognize them in my body better. I make, uh, I don't always make better real time choices, but I do more often. And if I slip up, um, you know, and react in a way that is not aligned with my values, then I, 
um, can more quickly get to a good outcome. Right. And tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Um, it's, you know, many times through the day, I'll just, that's a quick anchor. Any physical sensations that I'm experiencing or just breathing and, and just noticing to the patterns of the breath. Sometimes I'll fall into like holding my breath kind of deal and uh, bringing awareness to that and reminding myself to breathe more deeply. Uh, breath is an amazing, very convenient tool we have our whole life. Well, your book, How We Work, is fantastic. And I'll just mention that subtitle again. Live your purpose, reclaim your sanity, and embrace the daily grind. And what a great book that is. But I want to ask you a book you would recommend on the topic of mindfulness other than your own. Mm. Um, I really like Vic Stretcher's book um, about purpose. He is a graphic novel that I think is outstanding. It's just very readable. It gets, it's explicitly about purpose, but in my mind, when we're clear on our purpose, then that brings us to a lot more um, sort of innate desire to do mindfulness. So I would recommend, he's got a couple of great books, but his graphic novel uh, is fantastic. Okay, and I'll put that into our show notes as well. And uh, yeah, so can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? Uh, I My favorite approach to the, the thing that helps me be more mindful is I set 25-minute timers when I'm working. Um, mm-hmm. I, there's great apps people get value out of um, anecdotally. Research-wise, there's actually the numbers don't really support apps as being the best um, way classes are much more effective. Um, But I'm a big fan. Just set your timer, do Pomodoro's, which is the 25-minute sprint unitasking, not monotasking. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to develop mindfulness, to be more productive, and to get clear about like where you know, within those 25 minutes, what are the 10 other things my attention gets pulled off to do? Just any timer. Um, I think it's a great thing to work with. I do too. I really appreciate that. And and just going back to what you said about Victor Stretcher's books, I know Life on Purpose is one of those. Is that one of the books that you were suggesting? That's a great one. It's a great one. And he's got this graphic novel about the dung beetle um, that I highly recommend as well. Let me, I can, uh, the dung beetle. Do you know the name of that book? Yes. It is called, um, on purpose, the graphic novel. That's right. Okay. And dungbeetle.org. You can see a snippet of it. Um, dungbeetle.org. So you can get a sense of what this book looks like and what it's about. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that and that we've kind of gone back to that, dungbeetle.org, because no one's mentioned that on the podcast before, Leah. And uh, this sounds very interesting, a graphic novel uh, regarding a beetle, which really relates to mindfulness. So thanks for sharing this. Pleasure. This is, yeah, this is great. So Leah, tell us, how can we connect with you? How can we learn even more about what you're up to as you move through? through this journey and mindfulness and compassion? I'd love to keep in touch. Um, 
If you go to my website, leahweissphd.com, you can sign up um, and get oriented to the different courses I teach online and person and um, a bunch of the writing I've done for Harvard Business Review and all sorts of other publications. It kind of gathers everything together. Um, so that in social media links. Um, so I post a lot of um, the current research on mindfulness and compassion. So it's a good way to get um, little bite-sized updates about research and their implications. So Leo Weiss, PhD, that's the way to keep in touch. And I'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. So Mindful Tribe, that's Leah, L-E-A-H, Weiss, W-E-I-S-S, then PhD.com. So Leah Weiss, PhD.com. Go there, check it out, learn how to be even more compassionate and learn how to, you know, manage our world with more mindfulness and therefore enjoy our world more. So, Leah, it has been enjoyable to have you with us here on Mindfulness Mode. Thank you so much for sharing your your expertise and your knowledge today. Bruce, it's been such a pleasure to spend time with you. I've really enjoyed the, the chance to talk with all with you and with everybody. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You have a great rest of your day, Leah. Thanks again. Take care. Thank you. Yeah, bye now. Bye. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I hope you've enjoyed today's interview. If you did enjoy it and you would like one of those Mindfulness Mode mugs, well, just subscribe to the show and send me an email saying that you've subscribed and telling me a comment about why you like the show. Send the email to bruce at mindfulnessmode.com and I look forward to hearing from you. I'll mention you on an upcoming episode. Remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. So don't forget to share the good news about the show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.